Hey, good morning, Story Fam. How are we doing today? You sound great. You're singing your hearts out today. It's really awesome. And uh, I want to welcome all of you here to the story, especially if you're new to the story. I want to say a special word of welcome to you and just tell you how grateful we are that, uh, that you're here today. We hope you find a place to really dig in and belong here at the story. There is a place for you here, regardless of whether you're like an all-in lifelong believer in Jesus Christ or whether you've got like an entire laundry list of doubts and questions about God and religion in the Bible, like a list as long as like a CBS receipt, like that's okay. You've got a place here for you too. I promise. Um, this is a church that started out um, a little over seven years ago um, with a mission in mind of, of being a place where skeptics and believers could come together and wrestle through and with some of the deepest questions of our faith. So we're going to continue that mission forward wherever the Lord leads us. Um, now, in that spirit, I want to remind everybody, last week, we uh, rolled out the biggest announcement in the story's history. So the story is temporarily in this location until the end of next year. Our, our lease runs out next year. Been looking for a new home, and we announced last week that we have found a new home at 3223 Westheimer Road in River Oaks. It's uh, uh, around a half a mile east of where we started out and where we spent the first seven years of the story's life. And so we're super excited about the story acquiring what is now called Bethany Christian Church. And, uh, and yet we also know as much as we have to be excited about there, I mean, it's an incredible leap for, for our church. We also have a long way to go in terms of you know, preparation and, and fundraising, obviously, and getting ourselves ready in lots of ways. And one of the questions that we've heard throughout our town halls is like, uh, we want to know exactly who the board members are. Who are the decision makers and shot callers at, at the story? I've had a couple people ask, like, who owns the story church? If we're going to be buying this property, who owns it? It's like, you know, it's, it's a nonprofit corporation, so nobody technically owns it. We're all in this together, but the board is, uh, is responsible for stewarding it and making decisions on the congregation's behalf. One of the board members, um, since the beginning when we formed this board um, officially, uh, is, is my friend Matt Malloy. And Matt has been with us since the early days of the Story Church, before it was even the Story Church. And uh, he's been a faithful friend, but most importantly, he's been someone who's willing to be honest with me, sometimes brutally honest with me about, um, about the direction of the church or my sermons. Or any, he has held my feet to the fire like iron sharpens iron, the Bible says. One man sharpens another. And that's what our relationship has been like. And I'm so grateful for this, for this man as, as well as his wife, Carrie, and, and uh, their two kids, Mark and Ella. Um, so what's going to happen now is I'm going to invite Matt forward, and he's going to share a couple thoughts about where we stand as a church. And then I'm going to come back up after him and share a little bit more about uh, today's message, okay? So I've got a short message today, I promise. You were like, I've been here for five years. I've never seen you preach a short message. I am capable. The Lord can do all things, right? So um, we're going to hear from Matt first. Y'all help me welcome uh, Matt here to the stage. Thank you. All right. Thank, thanks, Eric. Uh, good morning to everyone. And thanks for allowing me a few minutes to talk about the opportunity we have in front of us as a church. Before we get started, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for this day, this morning, this moment you have given us. Lord, we ask for wisdom, discernment as we are stepping out in faith. Lord, may we always remember what you have done for us and what you are doing for us. Father God, you are our strength and our shield and you are the truth. 
May we proclaim you with boldness into this world. Amen. Okay, let me start with a little background on myself and my relationship with the story. As Eric said, my name is Matt Malloy, and I'm a board member here at the story. I'm from this general area. I grew up in the suburbs of Houston, went to the University of Texas, and came back to Houston after graduation. I married Carrie right after school. We have two kids, twins, Mark and Ella, who are now 15. I work in the energy industry for a pipeline company based here in Houston. So this part of my story, or something similar, is probably pretty common to many in this room. But to tell you who I really am, I must tell you about my relationship with Jesus. See, I grew up in a nice, normal home environment. I had two loving parents, an older brother, younger sister. I remember periods of time when we all went to church, but I also remember seasons where we didn't go much. I understood the basics, but I didn't have a real relationship with Jesus. As I, as I got older, into high school and then college, I had all but fallen away from any relationship with Jesus. Giving you the short version of the story here, there are some events that led me to question truth, religion, and even if there was any God at all. I decided that I needed to investigate my beliefs and why I called myself a Christian. After much reading, C.S. Lewis, William Lane Craig, Ravi, R.C. Sproul, Lee Strobel, and many others, I was confronted with the overwhelming and now obvious life-changing truth. Jesus walked this earth, his tomb is empty, and he is risen from the dead. At this point, I recall having a choice to make. Go on living like I had been, living like everyone else, or devote my life to following Jesus. I choose Jesus. I came to understand that nothing in life mattered compared to knowing Jesus. Not my job, money, status, you can have it all. I have Jesus. The freedom in that, the freedom in Christ, the Lord of all creation died for me so that I can have eternal life knowing him. This blew my mind and it still does. After that, I didn't really know what to do. I started attending church regularly because I actually wanted to. I joined a Bible study, started looking for mission trip opportunities and service opportunities. I was attending St. Luke's at the time and was pointed in the direction of a new church community that didn't have a name yet. This new community would eventually be called The Story. I met Eric on his first trip to Houston to meet the launch team. <clears throat> there was a lot we didn't know at the time, but we trusted that God would provide not only a place to worship, but also a congregation. As long as we preached the gospel and spoke the truth about Jesus Christ, we began worshiping in the gym, then a standalone building on St. Luke's campus, then in Timber Grove, and now in the museum district. Our location and facilities 
never defined who we are as a church. We can preach the truth of the gospel anywhere. And I am reminded of the verse Isaiah 55, 11. So will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. So who are we as a church? We are a church that proclaims the gospel where questions are welcome because we know that Jesus can withstand our doubts. We are a church that seeks to bring non-religious people into relationship with Jesus. We are a church that desires not to fill seats, but to stay true to God's word, even if the world doesn't approve. So what is our vision? Our vision is simple, clear, and given to us, not by our desires, but revealed to us by God's word through prayer to advance the kingdom of God in Houston, Texas, and beyond, to make disciples of all nations. And we have an opportunity to carry out our mission and our vision at a new location, Bethany Church in River Oaks. I'll admit I was one of the most hesitant to embark on buying a large building for the story. I prefer being flexible and not tied down to any one facility so that that facility doesn't become an idol. It's too common a pattern. Raise money, build a big church, then water down the message so that you keep people in the seats to pay the bills. But I'll tell you now that I am fully supportive of this endeavor. I believe that through prayer, God led the story to Bethany and Bethany to the story. Through prayer, God led us to walk through open doors and not push against closed doors. God is now opening the door for us at Bethany. And I believe that at the story, we will continue to have a high view of scripture, preach the gospel, challenge the congregation, and continue to multiply. Make no mistake, the new campus at Bethany is a launching pad, not a coffin. While other churches are struggling to stay afloat, we will press forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will embark on intentional disciple-making within our church and beyond. We will expand the new locations through multi-sites and eventually church planning. The location at Bethany is not our end goal. It is a new beginning for us. To do these things, we do need a location. We can grow the church and preach the gospel anywhere, but we do need a somewhere. So with all that said, I'll ask you to consider how you can be a part of this opportunity. This is not a sales pitch, but an invitation. An invitation to be part of advancing God's kingdom in Houston, Texas and beyond. Will you join us? As for me and my family, we are in. Thank you. Thanks, Russ. All right. That was exciting. Got me going. Thank you, Matt. Uh, 
Uh, so it, it's fun to sit out there and watch somebody else talk. I kind of like it. Uh, it's nice, comfy chairs. No, I, I'm so excited about this, and I know so many of you are as well. Um, Matt and his family mentioned, uh, Matt mentioned that they've already, uh, they've already gotten into this. They've submitted their commitment card, and others have as well. We're uh, already over 42% of the way toward our goal, um, and those commitment cards uh, will all come sort of due. Like, we're all submitting them on Celebration Sunday, which is the 30th of this month, so two weeks from today, y'all. Don't let it sneak up on you. Go ahead and have those conversations now. Um, say those prayers now, and just as soon as you or your family are ready to let your commitment be known, like, go ahead and do that so our team can plan accordingly and, uh, and add that commitment to the total. These are five-year commitments to be paid out over five years. And so um, uh, they're not legally binding documents or anything like that. They're just your best estimate as to uh, the extent to which God's calling you and equipping you and your family to, to uh, support this endeavor. So exciting to think about the, the Story Church having a place like Bethany, and we love that it's called Bethany because Bethany is the place where Jesus' friends were. Uh, you know, like Mary and Martha and Lazarus, that's where they lived. And that's, um, that's where we want to be, is, uh, is we want to be friends of Jesus, and we want him to come and see us there. So I can't wait until we're all there at 3223 Westheimer Road. Um, all right, so I'm going to uh, just sort of hit pause on that conversation and actually get to the, the meat of today's message, all right? So um, y'all are thinking we're going to get out by 1230, probably, but don't worry, all right? So it's not like that today. It's just a little bit of a different deal. Last thing I'll say about that is that if you don't, didn't get one of these in the mail this week, be sure and pick one up on your way out uh, today so that you can stay up to speed on where we are or visit the story.church slash vision for all the latest um, updates there, okay? All right. So, man, I'm excited. Y'all excited? Are y'all pumped about this? I'm just so excited about it. It's just so, it's so exciting uh, and unfathomable. Um, this is not how we plan for things to go. Uh, this all came about in August, and, and here we are. So, man, what I want to do today is tell you the story of, of two kings, really. I'll start with the first and get to the second later. There once was a king who needed a new wife because his old wife, started to run her mouth a bit, got a little annoying, and he got a little tired of her. And so he was the king, and he could do what he wanted, and so when she decided to have the nerve to exert her free will over and above and against his wishes and commands, he dethroned her and deposed her. She was never to be heard from again. And so the, the king was single again on the dating scene, so to speak. What do you do when you're the king on the dating scene? Where do you start? Where do you begin? It can't be as easy as creating a new Tinder profile. Nobody's going to believe it's really you. Like everybody's going to think they're getting catfished. No, everybody knows the king's face. He's not on Tinder. You can't just, you can't just enter the scene that way. So what do you do? Well, you're the king. You can have any woman you want. And if you're the king, you know that. And this king I'm telling you all about, he knew that very well because his first act after he deposed his old wife was to instigate or institute a, a nationwide, kingdom-wide search for the most beautiful young women in all the realm. And so he sent out his henchmen to scour the countryside and the cities throughout his vast empire to find the most beautiful faces and shapely figures that they could find. And, and any one of these girls who met his preconditions, 
or his standards of beauty, were taken from their homes and shipped off to Susa, the capital city of the Persian Empire, and they were put under the training of a beauty specialist named Hegai. Hegai put the young women through beauty treatments, facials, for example, um, etiquette classes, and things like that to prepare them for their big test. And the test was that they would be sent before the king one at a time, perhaps one night at a time. Like if the king liked what he saw in their initial presentation, he would take them to his chambers for further inspection, let's say. And if he liked what she had to offer there enough as she rose above the rest of the competition, then she would win the game and she would be given a crown, right? That's the story. That's the setup for the book in the Old Testament called Esther. Now, in the capital city of Susa, there lived a young Jewish girl, but her name wasn't Esther at first. It was Hadassah. Hadassah was the Jewish name that she was given because she was a Jewish girl. But when you lived in the diaspora, when you were an immigrant or refugee from somewhere else, you're often given a name that makes sense more locally. And so a lot of the people in the Bible had two names, their given names and their cultural name. And Esther was Hadassah's cultural name. It was a Persian name, literally meaning star. And Esther was about to become the star of the king's show. As soon as the king's henchmen laid their eyes on her, they were taken with her. This is in Esther chapter 2, verse 7. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. So that means the lovely figure specifically pertains to her like bodily presence or her bodily figure. And then beautiful meant her countenance, her face. So what they're saying here in biblical terms is that this girl is a total package in terms of what the king was looking for. She had it all, you know, not just one or the other, but both, right? So she's, she's the star all of a sudden, okay? So then it says Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So here in this introductory verse about this young girl, we learn a lot about her. We learn, for example, that she was young when this story began. We don't know how young, but I would imagine like below the age of consent by today's standards. If young, if a girl's called young in the Bible, that probably means teens at most. Okay, so she's, she's young, old enough, I guess, to have a, a figure, right? But, but still young nonetheless. So she's an orphan. Her parents are dead. She's young. She's Jewish or an Israelite. And she is already being physically objectified by the men around her. Those are the things we learn about her in this very brief verse. All of those things you learn about the character you're reading on in the Bible, that, those are clues about her situation. And what do, you, what do you perceive when you hear clues like this? Well, you're hearing a story of a girl who has no power of her own. This girl is being objectified, used. She's part of a greater game going on around her. She had no choice in the matter. The king's game with the men going out and finding all the beautiful women, bringing them to the city before him, you know, where he's choosing the winner. Feels a little bit like, if you're lighthearted about it, a little bit like a, an old-fashioned episode of The Bachelor, right? It's like, wow, it's like we're used to seeing this on TV. But just consider 
that it was a little bit like The Bachelor, except for the fact that the girls participating had no choice in the matter. They were taken from everything they knew, everyone they knew, everyone they loved, their, their hometown, their homes, etc. cetera. And, and just like the other girls in the family, it, it, was, it was probably, I mean, the other girls in the, in the um, game, it was probably an awful situation. We shouldn't romanticize it, in other words. Hollywood has, there's movies about Esther that have been made over the years in which like, it shows the king like catching feelings for Esther, like he loved, he fell in love with her. Yo, he did not fall in love with her. I hope you see that, that in the Bible times and these times in a kingdom like the Persian Empire, it wasn't about catching feelings or really loving someone. It was more shallow than that. This king saw a prop to be used, and that's exactly what he did, all right? So it would be more accurate to say that Esther and the other girls in this game were trafficked, uh, by our standards today at least. So the idea that Esther won this contest, which this book of Esther tells us she did, doesn't mean that Esther really won anything. I'm not sure it's a game any of them really wanted to win unless there was a couple of like really ambitious girls, you know, with overly ambitious mothers or something like, but that's not Esther's story. I'm not sure she felt like she won anything. Well, in the next um, part of the story, the king marries Esther, makes her the queen of Persia, and then the king goes on to appoint as his chief advisor this heinous uh, villain named Haman. And Haman really had it in for the Israelites, we're told. And his hatred for the Israelites only grew as Haman took this new office and his ego got away from him. Haman immediately wanted to be treated like the king, even though he wasn't the king. So he sort of manipulated King Xerxes to pass this edict saying that anyone representing the king out and about in the kingdom must be treated like the king. So everyone had to bow down. And... Because most people are kind of like sheep and don't really question the authorities in their lives, most people bent the knee to Haman, even though he was a man of low character who deserved no such treatment. Nevertheless, there was one man who refused to bend the knee, a man of high moral character and integrity who refused to bow to Haman. That man was Mordecai. We get clues about Mordecai being a man of great integrity because he adopted a girl that he had no real like obligation to adopt and raise as his own. When her parents died, he adopted Hadassah or Esther, raised her out of the goodness of his own heart. And we find him refusing to bend the knee to this, this villain, Haman. Now, now, his reason for doing that was because he only bent the knee to God. I don't bow to anyone but God. I always respect a man or a woman who says that. I only bend the knee to God. There's no one that I worship but God. But Haman was incensed. How dare this man, especially a man who's just an Israelite, a foreigner, a Jew, how dare he not bend the knee to me? So he went back to the king and got him to pass another decree. This is in Esther chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Haman said to King Xerxes, there is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So he's, he's manipulating the king here, which is interesting how he does it because the Persians were very 
uh, proud of how tolerant they were relative to other kingdoms at the time. They were so tolerant that they allowed other people that they conquered to bring their gods into their temples. They had temples full of many different gods. They didn't mind honoring some foreign god. They were respectful and tolerant in that way until you crossed a line. And the line for Haman was not bending the knee to his presence, his authority. And after that, Haman had enough, all right? So the king issued this decree, not really knowing that the people Haman was referring to were his new queen's own kin. Um, we don't know if that's because Hadassah or Esther had hidden her identity from the king or if it's because the king was so just uh, dense, he never even asked. Haman's like, I just want to destroy some people. And the king's like, cool, go, go have at it. Go destroy some people. And that was that. Okay, so he signed the edict calling for the genocide of all the Israelites living throughout the kingdom. Not the first time an edict has been signed to eradicate all the Jews. Not the last time. Uh, such a decree was signed either. This is a repeated theme throughout history. And you can make of that what you want. I see obvious spiritual implications to that repeated theme. Okay, so what's going on at this point in the story is that God's people are in serious trouble, that many lives are hanging in the balance if someone doesn't do something, and that the future is anything but clear. It's not clear what's going to happen and how God's going to deliver his people from this mess. Now, when Mordecai heard about this royal order that went out, he was obviously distressed and heartbroken. He's like, I'm the cause of this because I refuse on principle to bend the knee. And so Mordecai sent word by courier to his adopted daughter, uh, Esther, the new queen of Persia. And he was like, you got to do something. You're the only one who can. But there was one small problem that Esther pointed out to Mordecai when she responded. This is verses uh, 10 through 14 of chapter 4 of Esther. Then Esther instructed the courier, right, to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or any woman who approaches the king in the inner court, they will be, uh, without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death. You couldn't come to the king unless he summoned you. That was just, that was a rule that many kingdoms had. Actually, it's not unique to Persia, okay? Unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. Remember when I told you that the king objectified and used Esther? It wasn't like he caught feelings, like he really wanted to spend his life together with her. No, when he got tired of her, he didn't call her anymore. And that's what's going on here, 30 days without seeing her husband. Okay, it's been 30 days since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Some of the best verses in the Bible right here. Mordecai said, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. All right. So what's Mordecai saying? A couple of things. First, God's gonna save his people with or without you, Esther. But if you wanna be a part of this great thing, that God is about to do, this is the moment. This is your moment to say yes to God's opportunity. You can say no, 
and probably not live very long because we might lose this battle, but God will win the war. You can say no and save your own life for a time and never be remembered again, or you can say yes, and no one will ever forget your name. You can say yes, and 2,500 years from now, Esther, some weird church in Houston will be preaching about you. That's the option. That's the choice that Mordecai gives to Esther. And the, the the, I think this is the part of Esther's story that's most relatable because even though we've never really been in Esther's shoes, her circumstances were obviously more dire than the things we faced in life. We're separated by 2,500 years and 7,500 miles and, and Esther was like life or death right in front of her for her people. But maybe you haven't been in situations like that, but you know what it's like, I bet, to be cruising along in life. Every moment is kind of mundane. Every day is kind of ordinary. And then suddenly there's a moment in time that changes everything. Out of nowhere almost, there's a, there's a brief moment in time where you come to a fork in the road and everything's different after that. There are those before and after moments, right? Like, Matt talked about the moment he said yes to Jesus. Maybe you have a story like that where you spent your life running from Jesus. Maybe you were sort of semi-religious and then you said yes to Jesus and nothing's been the same since. You can't enjoy anything like you used to because nothing's as good as Jesus now. Football is whatever, baseball is, man, Jesus is yours and he's better than everything else. And he changed everything in your life. Before that and after that, two different lives. Once in a while, a moment like that comes along. Like a moment, maybe it wasn't a religious moment, a moment that after dating for a while, you decided to get on one knee and ask a girl to marry you. Like she could say yes, she might say no. You're not really sure when you get down on one knee, but her answer to that question will change your life forever. Maybe you were the one being asked and some weird boys on his knee asking you to marry him. And your answer to that question will change your life forever. Those moments that come along that are the extraordinary moments, the before and after moments. Some of you have gotten clean and sober from all kinds of substances or alcohol. It's like you decided one day, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm done. And you, have a, a, a life, you had a life before that. You have a life now. Those are very different lives, it feels like, when you walk away from the bottle or from the drugs or from porn or whatever it is you're enslaved by. We all know what it's like to face one seemingly safe, secure, comfortable path and one uncertain, dangerous path full of possibility. And to take this path requires extraordinary faith and courage. And that's what we see in young Esther. When she, in chapter 4, verse 15, sent this reply to Mordecai, chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, go gather all the Jews that are in Susa, and fast for me. Fasting is a form of uh, spiritual discipline or prayer connecting to God. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Awesome. This young woman who has now a whole comfortable life ahead of her, if she just keeps her mouth shut, and doesn't get mouthy like the other wife did. If she just does what the king says, she'll eat good for the rest of her life. She'll sleep comfy at night for the rest of her life. She'll be set. But here she is saying, that's not enough for me. If I perish, I perish. I'm doing the right thing. Doing nothing is not an option when the people of God are hanging in the balance. All right? 
So she went to the king. By some mercy, the king was ready to receive her and willing to talk to her, or at least to hear her. She pled her case. The king wised up to the uh, villain Haman's plot and uh, changed his mind about that edict, and the people of God were saved through Esther. Now, it may not feel like parts of Esther's story are entirely relatable, right? But there are some things that if you open your eyes, you will see clearly how relatable this story is. We still live in a time, I would say especially now, in which people made in God's image are in great danger. They're in a dark place. Their lives are full of despair and darkness. We still live in a time where lives are just hanging in the balance all the time. You know, in some ways we're healthy and and we're well-fed and all that. I'm not talking about just physically. I mean something more than that. And you know what I mean. In the last few years, we've seen people struggling, maybe like never before in your lifetime. I've never seen the kind of anxiety and stress and sadness and just depression that I've seen creeping in around people that I love and people that I'm walking this journey with. And you've probably seen it in your neighbors too. Why? Because the last few years have just been one wave of crisis after another, have they not? And it feels like we're living in the twilight zone or something. Like which, which side is right here? What's, what's true and what's not? Like we can't trust anyone. Can you trust the most trusted source in news? No. Can you trust any name in news? No, not really. They're all trying to play you. They're all manipulating you. They're all trying to get your fear and your anxiety wrapped around their news network. Can you trust your favorite politicians or even your political party? Do they have your best interest in mind? Please say no, because if you don't believe that yet, you've got a reckoning that's coming your way. No, it seems like there's nothing true coming from the mouths of our leaders. It can be so disconcerting. It can feel so disheartening to not know what's going on with a pandemic or a shutdown or a vaccine rollout or a booster rollout or a war in Ukraine or an economy that's tailspinning or what is happening? You ever feel that way? Everyone's feeling that way. And doing nothing about it is not an option, not for people who are called to follow Jesus. That's why I believe Jesus commissioned his church, not for just the ordinary times, but for a time such as this. That's why the story exists. Our mission has always been to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus, and we have seen that in real life. Most of y'all know we have another campus up in the Heights, right? We have Timber Grove. I hope some of y'all have been there, and it's an amazing experience. It's totally different than this. It's like in a warehouse. It's a That's where the cool kids go in the story. If you're looking for the cool kids table, it's over at Timber Grove, all right? So we have a great campus over there. When it started, we didn't have that location. We were, our first services were held in a brewery, which uh, I wrestled with, honestly, because it's like, is that okay? Is that allowed? I don't know. Um, Let's find out. So we did it. And we did it during a pandemic too, which was not probably advisable, but I remember, I think it was our second ever service um, afterward. I, I remember thinking the whole time we were there, it was like there's stacks of beer cans all over this place. We're worshiping Jesus surrounded by stacks, 
ceiling to floor of beer cans. And the place smells like hops, wet, musty hops. Even if you love beer, you hate that smell. It's just not a good smell. After the service, a young man approached Kale and I. He was a volunteer. I think he was running a camera at the time. And he said, you know, all my adult life, I've been an alcoholic. And my first thought was, oh, boy, what have we done? And he said, but Jesus, Jesus liberated me from alcoholism when I came to the story. And he said, during this service, I just looked up and I saw a stack of the stuff that used to own me and enslave me. And then I looked over and saw the cross on the stage, the one thing that actually saved me. And it all came together. And I realized I will never go back to that stack because of the cross on that stage. It was another reminder of why we do things the way that we do things at the story, always trying to create a a broad on-ramp for people that aren't religious people, that don't consider themselves church-going people. We, we had dinner, Gio and I, my wife and I had dinner with a couple that had never been to church together as a couple. They'd been married for 17 years. And the first time they walked into the story six weeks ago was the first time they'd ever been to church together as a couple. Now, they've always kind of believed in God, but they got burned by religion. Can you relate or do you know someone who can relate to that story? Those are the people that we're here for most, more than anyone. It's like people that have had it with organized religion for whatever reasons. They're heartbroken or disappointed by people who are religious. And what they want is a place to come and learn the truth and love of Jesus. And they wanted to raise their kids to know that love of Jesus, the love that they had experienced even outside of the church. They wanted it more than anything. That's why we're here. That's what the the church in general is all about. That's what we, as the story, are all about. So I want to tell you before I rap about another king. It's another king. A king who will never need another wife because his current bride is enough for him. Even when his bride gets mouthy, he smiles on her. Even when she exerts her free will, he delights in her. He gave her that mouth to begin with, and her free will was his idea in the beginning. This king is Jesus, and his bride is the church, and he's coming back to claim us and to make us his own. And when we are his, we will never need to seek his permission to come into his presence because he delights in being known and loved by us, and we will have his love forever, and it will never end. It is the only love story that never ends. It is the only love that is true, his love for us. And when he comes back, he will put on our heads a crown, a crown that will never fall off or be taken from us. 1 Peter 5, 4 says, when Jesus returns, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Y'all, I want you to see this is why what we're doing here matters This is why inviting people to church matters. You're not inviting them to hear some performance or some service or some preacher, you know, like like offering up a sermon. That's not what you're doing. You're, You're including them in the only true love story that's ever been. You're inviting them to experience the only love that lasts forever. That is what we are here to do. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love and provision, for the promises 
that you give us, that we are yours and you are ours. Lord, just give us courage, the courage of young Esther. When faced with one of those before and after choices, those defining moments, Lord, help us have the courage of that young woman who said, if I perish, I perish, I'm in. God, as we face this massive challenge and season ahead, Lord, we give it to you. And as we prepare our hearts for uh, baptism today and for communion, we just want more of you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.